guys, we came up with a really new invention, a really great new invention. It's that like when somebody was presenting at a conference, you could like crowdsource when they went to the next page. We're using this keynote live thing now and Yaron was giving <laughs> his, his like previous presentation. Usually we make like a PowerPoint and then we like talk off the PowerPoint for the for the podcast. And I was trying to like skip him to the next page when he'd nearly finished this, like like a mother, like, okay, the next one or a father, the next one, the next one. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, I, I would really uh, like to use that feature of- um, Some people. In talks, skip forward. Like Next. just what, just with Netflix, you can skip forward fifteen seconds. It's like, ah, can you? Yeah. Okay. You're at least on, at least on the app, um, I'm always skipping through things I either have seen already or I don't want to see like gory stuff because I'm a chicken. Because gross, yeah. I can't work out how to use it from my computer. I'm sorry, Yarm. Um. Yeah. So I won't. I won't be able to wish to. I don't have forward. pictures though. Um. Shall okay. we play the intro music? Hello and welcome to a new episode of the... <laughs> From now on I'm doing the intro this year. We've recorded, this is the second one we're recording today and your arm keeps on forgetting the name of our podcast. I wanted to say that we're no such thing as a fish, but we're really not. <laughs> it wow. Might, it might be the fact. Wow. <laughs> uh, it's just like sometimes you have these patterns of sentences that are imprinted through like music or other things that mm. are always repeated. You're listening and, too much. Yeah. Too much and fish. The, the words, hello and welcome to another episode of is so imprinted to me to be followed by. No such thing as a fish. <laughs> yes. I mean, no. we could have no such thing as a plant because I think the argument for there being no such thing as a fish is what we call fish. It's like, it's not a single um, like phylogenetic clade. So there's like different types of like cartilaginous fish or bony fish and like there's no real biological definition of what a fish is. And some people argue that plants it's the same thing because like... It's a good point actually, it's yeah. It's like split up and there's like algae in between. So it's, it's like maybe all plants are algae, but there's no such thing as a plant. I had a friend who was working on algae who was very into this idea and I don't think any other plant biologist would be happy about it, but yeah. Yeah, but so this is our 10th episode um, and of the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Yes, and we've almost understood what our name of our podcast is at this stage, so yeah. Yeah, only, I don't know, 20 more until I figure it out on the first try. <laughs> As we mentioned last week, we're trying a new format where instead of producing, our, instead of presenting two different journals each week we're now just doing one per week and then we can talk a bit more about the fun facts and stuff and this was as voted by you on our instagram poll a yes. couple of weeks back follow us on instagram plants uh, and pipettes at plants and pipettes um yeah today uh we were brought together despite a big thunderstorm in your kitchen uh, I will. I, I just want to mention this because I recorded a little bit of the thunderstorm while I was uh, standing in a in a bit of shelter. Can you do like the technological magic of like inserting that into the podcast? Yes, but not live right now. You have to imagine a thunderstorm.
That's very impressive, guys. Did you like that? Yeah. Let's give a round of applause for that one. That was that was crazy. Oh God. <laughs> so Tegan. Yeah, today, did you bring a paper? I did. Um, today it's my chance to present, and I'm talking about something that came out in May of this year in Nature Plants. Um, it's by Margarita Rojas as the first author, and the corresponding author is Alice Barkin. So it's from the Alice Barkin Lab. Um, and I have to admit that it's a a publication that I have a bias on in in two different ways. So the the paper is called Engineered PPR Proteins as Inducible Switches to Activate the Expression of Chloroplast Transgenes. And the disclaimer is that my previous lab worked on PPR proteins and my current lab is really into chloroplast transgenes. So although like none of us are involved in this paper, it's something that kind of hits my my past and my present and mm. my love of chloroplast. Um, yeah. Okay. So I can ask a very in-depth questions. Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, I can't because I don't understand anything about PPR proteins until now. Okay, so as I said, the title is Engineered PPR Proteins as an Inducible Switch to Activate the Expression of Chloroplast Transgenes. So let's start with the chloroplast transgene, transgene concept first. So what is a transgene, Yoram? It's putting a gene from one gene from one organism into another that is not present naturally in this organism. And that's a transgene, as opposed to a cis gene where it's from the same organism um, and, yeah. 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 And so usually we want to put a gene from one organism into another organism for basically two reasons. And the first reason is that you want to protect that organism. So some really obvious ideas is if you produce something in a plant that gives it herbicide resistant, like the very common idea of like glyphosate resistant or Roundup ready plants. Um, and the other reason you might want to put it into the plant is because you want to use the plant as like a biofactory to produce a lot amount of that protein cheaply. So sometimes using like natural synthetic processes within the plant is easier than doing chemical processes, especially if you need like very specialized um, enzymes to change like chemical bonds or structures and stuff like that. So And it's very energy and that uh, um, um, intensive, but to... Uh, it saves a lot of energy because if whenever you do something like this in yeast or in a fermenter, you have to put chemical energy and uh, physical energy into this. But a plant just takes the energy itself from the sun. Plants are amazing, you guys. So um, that's what, why many people um, try and work on um, putting uh, biosynthesis pathways for interesting compounds directly into plants because that's just so much easier to grow, grow them on a field than in a fermenter. Yeah. So, I mean, the really basic idea is that you have just a single gene and you want to either express like maybe the RNA, but usually like the protein product. So this could be again, like a resistance, like the glyphosate resistance. It's just like a single product. And the other is what Yoram just mentioned then that you put a whole pathway. So you're building a complex chemical or even multiple chemicals um, or products by putting like a whole lot of different genes in different enzymes, which then do different things and, and give you a plant, uh, a product. Um, and then the question is like, why have chlorop like chloroplast transgenes? Like, what's the reason for doing it in the chloroplast? Um, and as you guys already know, like chloroplasts have their own genomes and their own expression machinery to like make the RNA from those genomes and then make that RNA into protein. So they're kind of this like small self-contained like operation working within the plant. So separate from the nucleus and separate from the mitochondria. But the chloroplast is kind of cool because it's able to make very large amounts of protein. So the obvious example is the fact that Rubisco, which is the most abundant protein on Earth, the large subunit of Rubisco is actually encoded by the chloroplast genome and that protein has to be made within the chloroplast. 
and there are lots of other examples. So the um, the complexes for photosynthesis, so photosystem one and photosystem two, many of the cores of those complexes are also encoded and like made in the chloroplast. So it has an ability to make huge amounts of proteins. And the idea is right that the expression system, so the translation from uh, RNA into protein, is pretty much. Un, not, not unlimited, but there is very little regulation on that, and most of the regulation happens afterwards, right? So it just makes a ton of it, and there's a, a guy at the end of it that decides to, uh, how much of it to keep, and the rest is degraded again. And so if you put something foreign in there, it's not this great. Uh, there's probably um, not a deg degradation pathway for it, so it can accumulate to large uh, levels, right? Yeah. So the regulation does happen. It happens at the level of like the promoter or the like these Shandeganal sequences, which de um, define how much the mRNA is translated. So that regulation is happening. But as you're right, if as you said, if we if we use promoters and like translation sequences, like leader sequences from things that are very highly expressed, and then shove something foreign. Yeah, the, pl the plant is often not able to stop that from being expressed because it's got all of the go signals with the promoter and this leader sequence. And then the degradation might also um, not work so well. And part of that as well is what Yaron was saying is that unlike the, the nucleus, the plastid is not very good at turning things off that it doesn't want. So the nucleus has things which are like gene silencing mechanisms. So basically it's, it's not uncommon that you put a gene into the nucleus and then for some reason your gene of interest is not being expressed and it's basically because there's been a recognition of like this is either foreign or bad for us so let's like shut this shit down and the chloroplast doesn't seem to have that kind of um, regulation to the same degree. Yeah, another benefit of doing um, chloroplast um, engineering, putting transients in chloroplast is that you can decide exactly where you want to put the genes in this like small circular chloroplast genome. So when we do um, nuclear transformation, so using usually like agrobacterium, we put our foreign genes into the nuclear genome, but we basically don't know where it's going to go. And we also don't usually know how many copies of it are going to go in. So we just kind of like throw it and hope it sticks somewhere in the genome. But the chloroplast has something called homologous, homologous recombination. And this is basically the idea if you have a sentence and there's one word in the middle, you can switch the sentence with another sentence that has a different word in the middle. I don't know if that's making much sense. Yeah, so you have these flanking regions that sort of attach to the part that match to a specific part in the genome and then they can swap around with the part that's in between these flanking regions. And this doesn't work in the nucleus or only on a very special conditions. Um, but in the, yeah, in the chloroplast is the main mechanism on, on introducing DNA. And that gives you the ability to pretty much target your transgene. You can decide exactly on the position where it will be integrated. And then with a, a very high chance, um, you actually get that integration there as opposed mm. to nucleus, as you said. It's just like randomly somewhere and you hope it doesn't break anything important and you hope that, um, yeah, it, it works well. Yeah, and basically you're relying kind of on this idea that the, the chloroplast is not reading the whole sentence properly. So as long as the first bit and the last bit's right, it kind of like ignores the middle bit and you can put whatever you like in that middle bit. Um, and we actually, we don't, I don't think we really mechanistically understand how homologous recombination works, but it does. And <laughs> we're pretty sure it's kind of a repair mechanism. So um, the chloroplast can like, um, so each chloroplast has multiple copies of the chloroplast genome. Um, so it can maybe like copy um, and replace if things get damaged. And obviously if things get damaged in, in the chloroplast genome, this is like you're screwing with photosynthesis now. So the plant needs to fix that very fast. So maybe it's one of these like repair mechanisms. Okay, some other benefits of putting transgene in the chloroplast is that you can also um, stack genes together. So instead of reading out one gene at a time, 
Um, the chloroplast has this very old um, bacterial prokaryotic kind of system where it puts like genes kind of like in a group all together and it makes what's called polycystronic mRNA. So it's an mRNA which instead of having one gene has like maybe five genes. And this can be super useful if you want to make a whole metabolic pathway which is kind of controlled in the same way. You can just like stack them all behind each other. It's another benefit. And one of the final like big benefits is that you have containment of your product and also your genes. So the genes are in t contained in that they're in the chloroplast genome. And in many plant species, the chloroplast genome is only inherited maternally. Yeah. So, so only when the, um, when the pollen is formed, um, the, yeah, in, in the pollen, the chloroplast is excluded and in the egg cell, it is included. And so when the pollen moves to the egg cell, it doesn't bring a chloroplast with it. So all the chloroplasts always come just from the mother plant. And so if you grow them on a field, um, you don't have the spread of transgene through pollen. So if the yeah, if even if a um, a bug or a bee carries the pollen to the field um, on the next plot, then um, yeah, the transgene and the chloroplast will stay behind because it's not in pollen. And this is like obviously a big deal when it comes to genetically modified organisms because a lot of people are very concerned about if these GMOs will just like get out into the world. So the containment is sold as one of the reasons why hey, we could genetically modify them at the chloroplast genome level instead of at the nuclear genome level. Um, and the other thing about the containment is you also have like physical containment of whatever product you're making inside the chloroplast. This is like a, a membrane bound organelle. So if you're making something that could be damaging to other parts of the cell, it's gonna be stuck inside the chloroplast. Of course, the flip side of that is that chloroplasts themselves are really, really important. Um, and if you have proteins which damage the chloroplast or even proteins that just get incorporated into membranes, they might get incorporated into the thylakoid membranes, which are needed for the photosystems and yeah. then screw up photosynthesis. And then you have a really, really sick plant. Yes. So that's unfortunately, actually, like I've seen that uh, happen more than once in my research time that you have something, <laughs> you, you have an interesting protein and suddenly you figure out it has a transmembrane domain, which makes it stick very <laughs> tightly to um, membranes. And yeah, these membranes, they are a very uh, complicated system. And mm. if you disturb this system, yeah, photosynthesis is affected. And that is the main energy source. And that kills or at, le at least makes the plants very sick. Like Yeah. And actually, like when we're talking about the fact that we just mentioned before, chloroplast can make a huge amount of protein. We always cite in the field this idea that the chloroplast can like make a, a foreign protein to the levels of 70% of the total soluble protein. But if you look at this original publication, the plant that made those 70% of foreign protein was not a very happy plant in the end. Yeah. It was quite small and pale and, and sick. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we have to do is think about how we cannot completely mess up the chloroplast. And a possibility for this is instead of having the gene of interest, whatever your, your transgene is, being stress expressed all of the time, you only express it at a certain point in the life of the plant. And best case scenario you express it after the chloroplasts have already developed and after the plant has reached maturity and only then do that start turning on the production of this transgene that you want to farm or you want to do something with yeah i mean it's a very common thing that happens naturally right the the seeds of a plant they're not made from the very beginning from day one they like the plant grows to a certain level and then produces the seeds that we then might be interested in if it's grain or if it's used for oil so so far with many of the methods that we're conventionally using we can't really do that we try to make like the end product from the very first day and that brings problems with it mm. yeah so we as, as you're saying we have some methods to 
use certain promoters which only come on in response to certain things like heat or developmental time or even space where they're only expressing something in one certain like a leaf cell not the root cell um but it's still kind of in its infancy um this this field and it's pretty important if you want to try to engineer plants or like make them better or healthier or or use them for biofarming but not actually compromise the plant at the same time so one option to turn stuff on and off is called a riboswitch and this is basically something where you have um, a piece of mrna and uh, there's a regulatory segment basically upstream of the message and the regulatory system segment helps let that mrna either be expressed or not expressed um so one really easy way of doing it is that you have a secondary structure which folds up the part of the mrna which is required to let it actually be translated and it's all folded so then when the ribosomes come and try and translate it they can't find this this signal to start translation and they basically go away um and then you can have a, a second a chemical inducer for example and when the chemical comes it disrupts the secondary structure and all of a sudden the ribosomes can see that signal and you can get translation of your of your mRNA of interest. Um, yeah, so you can also do it a little bit like in a a more complicated way where you stack this um, this kind of system. So this is something which is actually, again, disclaimer, it was developed in my lab before I got there, but they um, the thing that they translated with this riboswitch was actually a T7 RNA polymerase. And that polymerase, once it's translated, then went and transcribed a whole lot of other RNA and that RNA was actually the target molecule. So this way you kind of um, amplify your signal that you get from. And the smart thing is that this RNA is uh, very specific and it's it recognizes a signal that is not normally recognized. So when it's just uh, without this specific polymerase, if you have your transgene with the promoter sitting there, nothing really happens to it. And only if you have this polymerase that's made, then it suddenly goes crazy and makes a lot of the mRNA and in turn then the protein. Yeah, but that being said, I have to say that all of the, the systems to turn things on and off so far tend to be a little bit leaky. So that means in the off position, they're not totally off. Um, and then the second question is how much you can turn them on. So what fold change you get from the on to off. And as this paper points out, even this best case scenario, which is this um, uh, ribo switch that then makes a polymerase that then transcribes a whole lot of RNA, you only end up with a final on which equals to 1.75% of the total leaf protein. And this is only seven fold change over the off and the off is still fairly on. So there's, there's several flaws with the current methods we use. Okay, so this system wanted to make something new and exciting using PPRs. Um, and PPRs are a type of protein. It's a very large um, family of proteins. So things which all have similar structural motifs in plants in particular. So there's like massive expansion of PPRs in plants. It's like, I think 400 members, if I remember rightly. Um, and PPRs are involved like at basically all steps of gene expression when it comes to mRNA in both the chloroplast and the mitochondria. So they help like stabilize mRNA and they facilitate translation. They also do things like processing. So editing of mRNA and all of these things basically in the life of the mRNA. And that's because they are mRNA binding proteins. And they do this by having a PPR domain, which is a pentatrichopeptide repeat. And it can be a certain amount of repeats, like X, 
X number of repeats or N numbers of repeats. And pentatrico just means 35. So it's basically just a repeat oh. that like there's 35 peptides, so 35 amino acids, and then you get like 35 again. It's kind of repeating in pattern. Um, and as I said, these repeats recognize the RNA and bind to it. Um, and up until now, we have like kind of a good understanding of which peptides you need at which position of the PPR to recognize which mRNA code. Mm. And because we know how it works, the idea is now we can make specific PPRs. That uh, recognize specific sequences. So exactly. And therefore... Yeah. This is something I only know of, like from the genome editing stuff where you have like these tail end proteins where it's very similar. You have mm. protein structures that make like sort of fingers. Or, like there's a zinc finger protein. Yeah. They're very famous. Um, and they have like these binding domains. And if you get the code just right, they recognize a specific nucleotide or set of nucleotides. Um, and so, yeah, with PPRs, then you can also manufacture or synthesize them or at least encode them like and use that to then have something that binds at a specific location in the DNA. And I guess then it does something really cool with regulation and gene turning yeah, so on and off. It could, it could activate um, the translation or it could um, prevent the transcript from being degraded. These are the most useful things. So you increase the amount of transcript and then you also increase how many of those transcripts are being, like the rate at which they're being made into proteins, basically. Yeah, so in this work, the group used um, PPR10 in maize, and this is basically the most studied of all the PPRs. I think it's the one we also have the crystal structure for. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the most well-known, but it also has a really great target. So um, in its native form, it stimulates the transcript of ATPH, which is one of the subunits of the ATP synthase in the chloroplast. And it works in several ways by both like preventing the transcript from being degraded and also increasing the efficiency of the translation of um, mm -hmm. the ATPH. So they chose PPR10 because it's really well known, but also because its target has this, this activity. And ATPH is the most efficiently translated of any mRNA in maize. So it's like a power player. And they've done previous studies which showed that when you have PPR10, you increase the ATPH expression by 70-fold compared to when you don't have oh. it, like 7-0. Yeah, so 10 times more than the previous <laughs> best system, yes. there was 7-fold. This is the on and off for ATPH with or without PPR10. So they reasoned very easily that they could change PPR10 slightly so that instead of um, recognizing ATPH, the cis element upstream of ATPH, which this, this PPR binds to, they could then make an engineered cis element. So the engineered PPR10 is only attracted to the engineered cis element, so it shouldn't attract the ATPH anymore, so it shouldn't interfere with like the, the normal stuff happening within the cell. Um, and then, of course, you put this engineered cis element upstream of whatever your transgene of interest is um, that you want to express. And obviously, in this pilot study, they used something that was visible. So they used like a GFP, which is just like a fluorescent protein that everybody uses. Um, it's small, it accumulates, and it glows. So it's it's pretty yeah. perfect. Um, and they tried different promoters with their PPR10. Um, so they used 35S. Which is a very standard... Um what we call constitutive promoter. So it's just on all the time and it's pretty strong. Yeah. And then they used um, two inducible ones. So one of them is a heat shock promoter. So basically if you have heat, this one should be activated. Um, and the second one is ethanol inducible. So you basically- Another standard, you put like open tubes of ethanol in your, next to your plants and the ethanol diffusers is taken up by the leaves and then sensed in, by this system, by this promoter and then it's activated. Yeah. 
Um, and then they, so that was the PPR10 to different promoters, but then they also played around with the the trans gene itself with the cis element. And they put the cis element and, and the trans gene like as a single monocystronic, it's called just as like one single um, gene that encodes on like one single gene encoding RNA. And they also put it polycystronic. So they basically put it behind another gene on an mRNA um, when it gets transcribed. Um, yeah, so they had a few different options to play around with. And the first thing they mentioned in the paper is that the heat shot didn't work very well. Um, I think heat shock is something quite tricky to play with. Yeah, it's on and an off, right? It's a, it's a very gradual thing. and I, I mean, you can get around it to some degree by dipping plants in hot water. Like you literally yeah. put them 30 seconds. But even so, like, although plants aren't like warm-blooded like we are, they still try to regulate. Yeah, and they produce heat through in the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, they... It's really hard to have a very controlled setup where you say the temperature doesn't rise above a certain threshold that activates the promoters. That's why it's always leaky and always really hard to have a clear difference between sort of the on and the off state. And the other thing I've like, I know a lot of these proteins are called heat shock proteins and I'm not sure exactly what they use. I can't remember, but um, a lot of the heat shock proteins that are defined in like the, the standard literature they also respond to a lot of other stimuli. So like they respond to heat, but they also respond to like an insect walking by or like it's yeah. like, I don't know, windy or I don't know, it, somebody yeah. looks at them wrong. Like they're, yeah. they're kind of responsive. And they found like... <laughs> yeah. Usually scared. It's like, ah, <laughs> let's do something. Let's make this gene. Yeah, why, why not? Am I, like, it's, I mean, they're usually, they're usually trying to regulate something that protects the plant, right? So if the plant gets a little bit unnerved, it often makes this shit. Um, so with the heat shock promoted this like modified PPR10, it was already quite highly expressed when it was not induced. So there was no heat, theoretically. Maybe the mitochondria was super active, who knows? Um, and also it didn't in- induce in a consistent way. So like sometimes you'd get huge induction and sometimes it's like, I can't really be bothered upregulating that. Um, but they still used this kind of varied, like not very consistent um, induction to actually look at how the induction of the PPR affected the accumulation of of the gfp that's downstream of this this ppr attracting cis element and they could basically see some sort of like like a correlation between of course the expression of the ppr and the gfp um and they saw that there was in the best case scenario they got a 40 fold increase in the gfp when they induced this ppr 40 fold 40 fold compared to the uninduced phase so just as a reminder it was seven fold i think in the the previous study um yeah, and they ended up with a total of twenty five percent of the total soluble protein. Twenty five percent, which is a similar level to the amount of RBCL. And this, I mean, they have the Western blots in the paper. You guys can go look it up. But this seems like an awful lot of protein. Like yes. I was just like, how? Like, yes. And the plant. I mean, also it's it's induced, so the plant is not so sick. But I don't think they had pictures of the plant in the maybe it's in the subs, but I don't think I saw it. But I was. It's a lot of protein, man. It's yeah. a hell of a lot of protein. Yeah, especially if you think, like it's something that I have to remind myself from time to time is that it's not just a large empty space with just like one protein here and one protein over there. And in between, it's just like water or nothing. It's it's a very crowded, densely packed environment already in the native state. So yeah. if you then add something that amounts to 25% of the total protein, it's just it's just so much in this little space. And I also like I, I could be wrong here, but I also have the feeling that the chloroplast is already like working pretty hard to constantly churn out protein. So it's already at pretty high translational capacity to then add like another one quarter of the energy. 
Yeah, it's the energy, it's the building blocks. It's you like, must be knocking down other things at that stage. So like maybe yeah. for short term, it's okay. And then the plant would... And okay, this is also the other benefit of GFP. GFP is a very stable protein. So if you make it once, it hangs around for longer than other proteins worth yeah. would. Yeah. So... But we, we can deal with that. I mean, if we have like a, another trans um, gene which has a protein, we can play with that protein to increase its stability. That's also something yeah, that... Yeah. So maybe it's not a problem. Anyway, some other results from the paper was that they found that there was strong discrimination between the native PPR10 and their modified PPR10, which means that there wasn't too much crosstalk between what should be happening with this ATPH and and their new stuff. So this like this is good. It's like a cleaner system. You're not screwing with things that are happening yeah. normally. Yeah, that would be problematic to screw with the yeah. ATP Whoops, synthase. Yeah, we turned off AP ATP synthase by yeah. turning this on, and this is what they really didn't want. Um, another finding was that although the heat shock induction was sketchy, the ethanol induction was quite robust. So um, they found that like in both 8 and I think 10 or 20 week old plants, they got like a good induction of the ethanol. And with that, they got like 15% of the total soluble protein, which again, the previous method still only had like less than 2%. So it's like yeah. a... Yeah. Good amount of protein. And the final thing is by doing these studies, they also found that the PPR, their, their modified PPR10 was stabilizing the transgenes in a way that wasn't necessarily expected. So what they knew about the native PPR10 was that it protects from um, degradation of the, the transcript, like from one of the ends, but they were finding it was stabilizing it even when it was not at the end. The, the modified PPR10, which has implications for how the, the native PPR10 mm -hmm. works. So this is just something to kind of like bonus information. So it's like a potential new pathway of mRNA stability that was previously not really well understood and that might... Yeah, it, it might be not... It's, it's maybe like it's not only protecting from exonucleic um, degradation, but also from endo. So something yeah. that's like coming and snipping it into pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this was basically the finding. It is is quite quite cool research. They they mentioned some possibilities for future um, re like directions for this this cool new stuff. And one of it was what you already mentioned was that instead of having these inducible um, promoters, you could just have something which is like developmental stage dependent. So you could have like um, your transgene induction with this PPR coupled to a promoter of the PPR that's like senescence induced. So as your plant is starting to die, suddenly it produces all of this pharmaceutically valuable protein. I I'm making things up here, but yeah, this, yeah. Is the, this is the idea. Um, you could also have like some tissue specific promoters so that instead of producing it in the leaves where the chloroplasts need to have like nice functional chloroplasts maybe you could put it in the roots if that's what you want especially like in in a species like potato where like the the root or the tuber is is where like the value is so yeah. there's also these options available um and there's also some possibilities that because they they had i mean the possibility to, to change this ppr 10 in quite a basic way they think they only changed two of the base pairs of the PPR10 to make the modified PPR10, they said that you could like stack genes in a metabolic pathway and have slightly different cis elements with like one base pair, base pair different and thus have different expression levels of the different genes, but just by inducing one PPR okay. modified PPR10, for example. So okay. like- So the one guy comes around and binds like differentially strong 
evenly to the different yeah, elements. The, the fir- let's say the, the first gene has exactly the right cis element it's looking for. And then the second one has like one base pair wrong. So it still binds to it, but like not quite as well. And now you can get like double the amount of the first gene as the second gene. So yeah, yeah. yeah it's super useful for metabolic pathways where you need everything to be expressed, but maybe you need two times more of X than, than Y. Yeah, like which is way. really the, one of the main issues nowadays whenever we try to put a metabolic pathway from one organism into another or make even new pathways in synthetic biology is that our tools are still quite blunt in terms of regulation. So we can put the things there, but tuning them right and having making sure that there is like 75% uh, of one protein, 50% of another one is really, really hard to do. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, the tools like these have the potential. I mean, they, they didn't show this yet. They, pro- they proposed that, but mm. have really the potential to open uh, this field up and at least adding tools to the toolbox to make these pathways happen. Yeah, so that's the research. Go check it out. It's Nature Plants that came out in May um, by Margarita Rojas in Alice Barkin's lab. Cool, yeah. Again, this will be linked in the, uh, in the show, show notes. notes. Um, yeah, thank you for that. And now it is time for... to do when this music is playing. You should dance. You must dance. My favorite plant. Dance, my, dance. My favorite plant. Um, this week is uh, because I tried, last week I presented this app um, to recognize plants and I thought maybe I find a really cool plant in my neighborhood. <laughs> Turns out most of them were very common, very basic plants. <laughs> so I had to do a, like, a last minute research. So I started looking at the plants with the biggest leaves because I Ooh. wondered what that is. And um, can I guess the size of the biggest leaf? Yes. Is it like a diameter or an area? It's a uh, um, dimension by dimension. Mm. Two meters by two meters. No, not even close. It's twenty-five meters wow. by three meters. No. Um, but it's a palm tree, and I find this is sort of cheating um. because in a palm tree. The leaf, you see like a palm tree, you have the sort of a, a spine, you have like like needles, you have like little leaf parts coming off it, leaflets. And is it really a leaf or is it like a... The entire structure is a leaf. So there's the backbone and the leaflets coming off it are technically a leaf. Nah. And because I found that very disappointing and sort of cheating because also these, these guys, they grow forever and the ends die off. So sometimes it's also really hard and if you don't prune them if you have them in your garden and you don't prune them they just stay on there and look really ugly um, but then it's also hard to say when does the leaf end because it's depending on like water status and stuff they might die earlier or later I found this all a little bit cheating it's absolutely still. cheating uh, according to this this um, this article it's called Raffia Regalis but then because I'm not playing with cheetahs <laughs> I looked up a different plant. I, I clicked around a little bit and I came to plants that ha- are just a like general plant list. plant that has actually the biggest leaf. Like none of this palm bullshit. Yeah. And there is a guy called Ganera manicata, um, also known as the Brazilian giant rhubarb. Giant rhubarb or dinosaur food um, is a species um, of flowering plant um, that's native to Brazil, but you can also find it in botanical gardens here. And I know that because I took a silly picture. Hey, I've seen this. I took a silly picture in in front of one uh, when I went to Scotland and there was a botanical garden. And um, Yeah, so I took a picture there with... Um, I wonder if I... 
I saved it, but I don't know where it ended up. But I will put it in the show notes. You see me in f- standing in front of one. Um, and these guys make leaves of a diameter of about three meters. And the entire plant can um, grow quite tall, also up, up to three meters. And it makes like these giant... I mean, if you know rhubarb, you know it has already a lot of leaves. And this is just giant. I think I've seen one of these in the Wroclaw, like in Poland. They have a botanical garden. I'm going to try and find a photo as well. Okay, so continue. Yeah, um... Interestingly, this is actually not really closely related to rhubarb. It just shares some of the features of like the the thick stem. um, And it is thought to be around 150 million years old. Um, And while I'm already quoting from Wikipedia here. That's the dinosaur rhubarb. Yeah, it's very old and it's it's, it's named after a a Norwegian bishop and naturalist, Johann Ernst Gunnerus. How do you spell that? Like Gunner? No, you don't need to spell <laughs> Who it. Who also named the basking shark. So what? <laughs> there's a piece of trivia for you uh, at the next cocktail party. Uh, let people know that the same guy who <laughs> named the basking shark also know. named the giant Brazilian rhubarb. Let people know that you have no friends and too much spare time and you can't afford Netflix. <laughs> Right. Yeah, if you if you come to me at the party and give me that fun fact, I will buy you a drink. Um, so just as an incentive there. <laughs> That's cool, actually. Yeah. A cheap drink. He's, he's a father depends, now. He can't afford your drinks. fancy shit, guys. Depends on how many drinks I had before. It depends how much I'm willing to pay for your drink. Okay, that's quite beautiful. Is it poisonous like rhubarb? Like rhubarb has this thing where you... I mean, maybe it's just not edible. Um, yeah, Those things I don't, are just... I mean, it's I, called dinosaur food, so it must be edible to dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, but then again, dinosaurs also ate other dinosaurs, so I don't know. But we could eat... Like, din- other dinosaurs wouldn't be poisonous to us either. I think we can eat most Depends things that them. dinosaurs can I mean, eat, there right? Are, there's this, like... There's this weird ancient shark in... Was it in, in Greenland? That uh, is so full of urea that it's almost impossible to digest. Um, so, um, I don't know if you could eat dinosaurs. I uh, want I want you to weigh in on this, guys. Um, please let us know if you think that we can eat most things that dinosaurs can eat. <laughs> yes, please let us know in the comments or on Google our says media. some dinosaurs may have even been cannibals eating their own kind. <gasps> dun dun dun. That's how they actually got extinct. It was just like one very hungry dinosaur that ate all of its kind. <laughs> like a book the very hungry dinosaur yeah. on the first day i ate a stegosaurus on the second day i ate two brachiosaurs okay so yeah this uh the the giant rhubarb is used in traditional medicine it says here to cure sexually transmitted diseases Ooh, that's not gonna work <laughs> no. you've got syphilis and now you haven't cured it <laughs> There is a terrible post related to that uh, going around where it's called um, on, on Twitter um, natural birth controls and it mentions mm. things like papaya and mm. so on um, and also some actually very toxic plants that also like they induce uh, abortions and oh will, no yeah but they will also kill you just like this is why abortion kid. should be safe and legal and readily available to anyone. Yeah. We're going to like become political this episode. Don't take medical advice from, from a shareable on Twitter that mentions good. natural birth control. It it will like best case you'll get pregnant, worst case you will get very sick dead. or die. You'll get very dead. Um yeah, so also don't don't use giant rub, rhubarb to treat your sexually transmitted diseases. Um go see a doctor. Um, yeah, if you Google this, you find lots of nice pictures of people standing next to the plant or put it, poking their head through the leaves. And now we'll put a photo of your arm and I standing next to it as well. Uh, I think I have one. I'm 
Like I'm looking at. I have one. one. I have yeah. one. Where I'm saying, I think it's one. Like it's. Sort I'm of a well-known narcissist, so if I've seen this plant, I've taken my photo with it for sure. <laughs> yeah, so that's my favorite plant, giant rhubarb. <laughs> um. Yeah. Now we have to do our fun facts, and we don't have theme music for our fun facts. Not yet. I should really uh, make one. So I have the theory that because it's my disgusting voice saying my favorite plant, Yoram should have to sing something for fun facts. I can, I, I can do a rap. We will no. We will be taking <laughs> any requests which do not involve Yoram rapping for suggestions for what we can do for fun facts. I don't facts. have a gun. I have a no! lot of fun. <laughs> It has to at least be slightly about plants, right? <laughs> Ugh, I'm just Plants need the sun, so we will have fun. Oh, I found my photo. Look, that's it, right? It looks like it. Yeah. Okay, so we'll, you can judge who, who wore it better um, in the show notes. Me or the rhubarb plant. Yarm is not in the running. No, like me and the rhubarb plant or um, you and the rhubarb plant. Who wore the rhubarb plant? But maybe like the rhubarb the plant rhubarb- should also get... It should be like three categories. Like <laughs> Tegan, you're like... No? Yes. 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 No, I'm, I'm rather thinking one of these like terrible uh, magazines for young people where it's like, oh no, Britney Spears wore the same dress as Christina Aguilera. Ew, gross. She should die. Yeah. And by that, you know how old I am Okay. Now. Fun facts time. Fun facts. Yoram, have you got fun facts? Yes, I have a fun, fla- fun, fun fact. Um, somebody brought a CO2 meter to a conference. And uh, oh no! And measured how what happened to the CO two levels in a conference room mm. um, during uh, like a, um, a session. And when the doors were opened, the CO two obviously dropped. But he also correlated that to like feeling tired. And there's there's a threshold around a thousand ppm of CO two in a room, which is it's not toxic, but it's um, generally proven to make you dizzy and tired. Mm-hmm. And when the doors were closed of the room, it um, often uh, um, crossed this line of a thousand ppm, which is an explanation why you often, at least I, feel very sleepy in conferences, especially after, like, when the session goes on for a bit. And it's not only because you don't have any self-control and can and are just too stupid to understand what's going on. It's actually the CO2 levels that rise and make you tired. So we should all bring like mini oxygen tanks into the room yeah. so that we're the one who stays and then, like, awake. Aware. And you should like like selfishly breathe in everybody else's oxygen and then also breathe on your like tank that yeah. like you win. Yeah, and I just I found this on Twitter. Um, we'll link it. I just thought uh, thought it was a little fun thing because somebody brought this um, CO2 uh, sensor cool. and the temperature sensor and then just measured what happened during sessions and during coffee breaks. And um, yeah, I've wrote a little bit about how tired he got. And it's also a nice thing about uh, peer pressuring somebody to do good figures because first he just posted the raw data <laughs> and people were complaining like, your axis, <laughs> the labels are terrible. What's going on here? Why are and you using he Comic Sans? Boo, Comic Sans. <laughs> he went through the several iterations and um, because people all wanted specific things to be added to the graph, he said, okay, I want a dragon. So the final figure also has dragons in them. Can I? Okay, I need to see this. Yeah, I can. I think the context for this is also that, like, oh, very cool, there's dragons. Yeah. Um, the context is that like, Yoram and I both used to be in the same lab group, and we would have this, like, 40 people crammed into a room that had yeah. no ventilation. And usually, like, in winter in Germany, like, I would always sit next to the window, but then I opened the window, and everybody would bitch about how it was cold. <laughs> and it's like, yes, it is cold, but we need to breathe air at some stage. Like, oxygen needs no to air. enter our lungs. Just like, warmth. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Okay. Um,. I think my fun facts are not very fun, to be honest. So I can give you some stuff that's like, eh. Um, this, <laughs> this is by um, Fizzorg. 
phys.org. It's kind of like various science news. And it's based on a paper that um, is, I think, Zoe et al. Metamorphic robustness testing, exposing hidden defects in citation statistics and journal impact factors. And I think we've mentioned before that there's been a lot of discussion recently about how we as a scientific community rely too heavily on impact factors of um jobs of journals but like this is all based on citation and there have been several studies that show that certain research is less likely to get cited and one of the things that really hurts my feelings is that names that are longer and double-barreled so I'm Amerigo married by name they're less likely to get cited <laughs> and it's basically I think it's an older data from the days when you had to like use your typewriter to type out the name people just can't be fucked like putting in the full name and also because a lot of journals lift, list the reference alphabetically, things at the bottom of the alphabet are less likely to get cited than things at the start of the alphabet. Which I'm is so culpable of that. Like <sighs> I, when I was looking for a reference, sometimes I was just like scan through and it was like three pages of references. And when I was like middle of the second page, it was like, ah. <laughs> yeah, I'm done now. <laughs> um, so this is then a, a study on the title of the journal. And they basically just found that the hyphens in a paper title harm the citations counts and the impact factor of the journal um what i found quite funny is that they have like a bar graph showing the number of hyphens in a title so it's not just that you have one hyphen it's like you can have like but up in the to, title of your research paper yeah yeah like up to six hyphens who has six hyphens in their titles <laughs> um <laughs> a study about hyphenation yeah, unsurprisingly, that affects your citation rate. I don't think it's super, super bizarre. But I also do like the fact that as somebody who has a tendency to like have very long sentences and lots of subclauses, too many commas, and then like colons and semicolons and stuff, I like the fact that the... So you're the, making just em like, what is it? That emoji, the precursor of that, like ASCII emojis? <laughs> All your no, no, special no. characters. <laughs> the special characters, like just like my my old boss was like Tegan. Sometimes you use commas too often. Like maybe maybe stop that. Put a full stuff every now and then. Um, I like the fact that the people the the paper that discovered this finding that hyphens are problematic. Their title doesn't have hyphens in it, but it does have a colon, and it's quite a long <laughs> title. So I thought that was kind of cute. Good work. They won't get cited. <laughs> I mean, I'm reading it and now I mean all of our listeners are gonna look that up, find a way to incorporate it into their research. <laughs> like, like I'm writing on plant plasters, I'm like, you know what? This is important. Like I'm gonna include this paper in here as well. <laughs> try to find editors, I dare you to try to find it in my next publication, this like random <laughs> random <laughs> research about names and yeah. Yeah. Okay. Still I'm I'm really surprised about the result because the way are I you used though? to do it's the the, the workflow involves citation managers and oh, yeah. citation managers don't really discriminate uh -uh. against that. I mean, they do sometimes, alphabetic sorting. No, the problem is sometimes if you have special characters, the like um, the citation manager can't find the reference. Yeah. So I've had situations where depending on whether they have like a hyphen or like stupid symbols, it just can't find it to download. And then I have to like get the PubMed ID. It's a whole big thing. Like the, EndNote just can't work that shit out. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Like, yeah, don't use very obscure characters in your titles. Yeah. We will use an obscure character in the title of this episode. I don't know which one yet. I'll find one. It will pro probably, like, in the old ASCII, like... Um, I think just, like, put everything like, with hyphens. I want at least five... Because the, the, the threshold here is more than four hyphens. I want our thing to have more than four hyphens in it. That's, that's the aim of the... <laughs> yeah. Okay, any other facts do you have, um, kind sir? No, not, not right now. 
Boom, 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 boom. Okay, um, I guess that's it for today then. That that seems to be it. I'm just writing down that I will put four hyphens in the title of this episode, God. which you will see now in your podcast. The quality player. of the help these days is just technical assistance. <laughs> Stop typing. How should I? How else should I remember it? <laughs> All uh, right, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, hail and farewell. We're we're done for today. Please um, follow us on all of the social media things on instagram and facebook we're plants at plants and pipettes and on twitter we are plants pipettes please interact with us in any way that is possible even if you want to tell us what we're doing wrong you know the algorithms and all of the social media stuff any interaction is actually a good interaction and also we like attention <laughs> don't, so don't, don't invite abuse yeah okay don't abuse us please don't give us death threats it's not pleasant yeah um and if you like this podcast, consider reviewing us on iTunes. It helps a lot in climbing the ranks and being visible uh, amongst all the other science podcasts. Five stars only, please. Yes, five stars only. And our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. And next week on the podcast, we will be talking about how we can use CRISPR-Cas9 as a tool of plant protection. Or can we? And we have a very rambling discussion about <laughs> everything involved. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>